From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Colorado is set to pay out more than $3.5 billion in TABOR refunds next spring. That's one of the largest amounts of money the state has ever returned to taxpayers. We are now in the crazy, crazy TABOR surplus era, right? where we are seeing these huge TABOR surpluses and everyone's scratching their head. They're like, well, why? And for the first time ever, the state could be forced to pay refunds for six years in a row. But will it continue? We'll talk about it with CPR's public affairs reporter, Andrew Kinney. And later, Colorado's known for its majestic mountains and sweeping plains. But that's just one reason it also has a unique distinction when it comes to severe weather. There's actually, in certain wind conditions, a convergence line. And for that reason, it is Tornado Central. Every member has that moment when they decide it's time to start supporting Colorado Public Radio. Make this your moment. Call or text GIVE to 800-496-1530 and make your gift today. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Coloradans are set to receive a collective $3.5 billion in TABOR, or Taxpayer Bill of Rights, refunds next year. That's one of the highest totals ever, and it could break records. So why is the state paying so much money back to taxpayers, and will it continue? CPR's Andrew Kenny joins us now to explain. Hi, Andy. Hi, Chandra. So we're seeing some historic Tabor refund numbers. Help us understand just how historic they are. Sure. So for two fiscal years in a row, the state, like you said, is going to have to return more than $3 billion to taxpayers for each of those years. And if you go back like the nearly 30 years Tabor's been around, we had never, ever seen a refund of even more than $2 billion. And now we're at $3 billion. Mm. And all indications are that's going to keep going for quite a while. We could end up seeing refunds for six years in a row, which we'd never seen before. That could continue all the way into 2027 or even later. That's just when they stopped forecasting. And again, there's are numbers we just hadn't seen before. Here's Scott Wasserman of the Progressive Bell Policy Center. We are now in the crazy, crazy Tabor surplus era, right? Where we are seeing these huge Tabor surpluses and everyone's scratching their head. I want to understand the why, but first, how do these refunds work? One of my favorite things to explain. So Colorado's got, you mentioned, this constitutional amendment called the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, TABOR. And what it does is somewhat unusual among all the states. It sets the hard limit on how much tax money Colorado can actually take in in a given year. TABOR says basically the general fund, this kind of discretionary money the legislature spends, that can only grow at a rate that's determined by population and inflation growth. But, you know, like in years where the economy is pretty hot, when we're all kind of collectively making and spending more money, paying more taxes, normally that would drive a lot of new tax dollars into the government coffers, you know, because we are paying taxes at a certain rate. Mm. But under Tabor, when that happens too fast, when there's too much economic activity, the state just can't collect all of that tax dollar, all that tax revenue. And it has to give back the quote unquote extra or surplus money. What's happening now that's creating such large refunds? 
Well, these kind of big, huge refunds the last couple of years, those $3 billion whoppers, those were caused in part by uh, the pandemic, basically had all this economic whiplash. There was this big surge in income. But now, after this $3 billion kind of phase, uh, even for the next few years, just normal economic growth may be enough to kind of continuously keep Colorado above that revenue limit and keep Colorado having to pay Tabor refunds. Here's Chief Legislative Economist Greg Sabetsky. I think as the economy grows at a normal pace that we should see larger Tabor refund obligations over time. And that that is, in fact, what we're seeing. Okay, let's move on to one of the big questions on the minds of many. Exactly how much are we getting back? That's what everybody wants to know. Yes. Uh, Chances are that you probably just got, I know I did, your most recent Tabor refund. So let's talk about next year. If they keep using the current system, if the state keeps with the current system, it'll be paid out in these tiers based on your income. The lowest tier would be about a $600 refund. And that would be for anybody making up to about $50,000. And you can go all the way up to the highest tier. That would be more than $1,800 of refund. That's for a single filer. So if you're a married couple, you get twice that. Um, and usually that's paid out in the form of, it's like paid out alongside your tax return refund. Uh, and future refunds after that, you know, 2025, 26, 27, would probably be smaller, but would still be into the hundreds of dollars. You said that's the current system. Mm-hmm. Is there a chance that changes? Yeah, definitely. The state actually has a lot of flexibility in how it does these kind of paybacks when it has a surplus. Uh, There's even a ballot measure this November called Proposition HH. It does tons of stuff with property taxes and Tabor refunds. But one of the big immediate effects, if it passes, is that it would, we're calling it, it would flatten out next year's refunds. So instead of having that range from $600 to $1,800, if HH passes, everybody instead gets a flat about $900 next year. That's just one of the interesting examples of how Democrats are taking a hard look and changing how Tabor and Tabor refunds really work. Colorado is increasingly blue politically, but Democrats have really struggled to change Tabor limits and use this refund money for other priorities. Why is that? It just goes to a really big question. On one side, folks on the left tend to say that we need to raise that Tabor revenue limit and use that refund money instead on bigger priorities. So here's Wasserman again. Why shouldn't the Tabor surplus, which which comes to us with no change in the existing tax rate, why should it not be subject to to allocation, to thoughtful, you know, um, to uh, thoughtful investments? be it education, infrastructure, why shouldn't the Tabor surplus be a pot of money that we are allowed to look at? But on the other hand, I think a lot of people, it's tough because people just like refunds. Nobody really gets that mad when money shows up in their bank account seemingly (laughs) out of nowhere. And it's just historically been tough to convince voters to give those refunds up. Here's how former Governor Bill Owens put it to me. He's a Republican. Tabor is very popular in Colorado, and I think at at some point, level the electorate understands, hey, government has to give us back money if it gets more than it needs. And and I think that's probably the basic level of understanding. And that's something that is hard for the left to overcome, except through the subterfuge of HH. 
just briefly, he's talking about Proposition HH. They're saying that, you know, it may cut property taxes, but it's also raising the table revenue limit and affecting refunds. We'll see what voters think of that kind of debate this November. Andy, well, thanks for sharing your insights with us. Thank you, Chandra. That's Andrew Kenny, public affairs reporter for CPR News. Read Andy's reporting on Tabor refunds at CPR.org. When we come back, why leaders in Grand Junction say closing a park is actually making it more accessible to the public. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. For decades, public radio has been a reliable source for fact-based news and independent music programming, but also for tote bags. If you don't have a public radio tote bag yet, or you just want another one, make a gift of $15 a month and our new tote bag can be yours. It's durable and spacious, features Colorado-themed graphic art, and shows off your support for the service you love. Check it out and donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. Denver is not the only city struggling to find solutions to homelessness. The unhoused community in Grand Junction experienced a major shakeup this month when the city opted to close a downtown park. It's prompted backlash from homeless advocates who say the move came as a surprise. Our Western Slope producer, Tom Hess, has been following the story closely. Hi, Tom. Howdy, Chandra. (laughs) Bring us up to speed on what's happening in Grand Junction. So the park we're talking about is Whitman Park. It's kind of adjacent to downtown, and it's not gotten a lot of use from the general public over the years, but it has become sort of a central gathering spot for the city's unhoused. It's kind of tough to get to. It's between two highways, but it is close to service providers. It is where a lot of the service providers get out into the community and find these people, get them things like meals, get them things like haircuts. And it's become a real focal point for this discussion in the Grand Junction community about homelessness. And a couple weeks ago on a Monday, the city sent out a press release that the park was closing. And on a Tuesday, the barricades were up and the park was closed. Hmm. How has the community responded? Surprised. I think everybody was surprised by even some members of city council said they were surprised. They sort of expected to have a meeting about this beforehand. And a lot of the service providers who work with the unhoused community said it kind of caught them off guard. Stephanie Vasquez runs a group called Mutual Aid Partners. She told city council members that springing this closure on people undermined some of the work that the city was accomplishing with its nonprofit partners. Distrust has been eroded and it feels like we're back at square one. The hopelessness felt and shared at the mutual aid distribution last Tuesday is definitely shared by me and my providers. Finally, I must acknowledge that it's much easier to place the blame on one person or one organization as it eases our own cognitive dissonance. This is a community issue and every single one of us, it's a problem that we contribute to. So it is up to every single one of us to work together to find solutions. A lot of advocates felt that way. Some business owners nearby were happy about it. Those who sort of are on the front lines of this park being a gathering spot for the unhoused. But the top complaint from those who were taken back by this is 
there wasn't a lot of information about it when it happened. It was mm. kind of cast as a parks issue that they want to reimagine Whitman Park. The press release that came out talked a lot about how old the tree canopy was and that we're going to make this a special events reservation only park. And there wasn't a lot about the unhoused situation. And that led to a lot of unanswered questions. Have we gotten the answer to some of those questions? We have. So when this first started, there were rumors about maybe safety was a concern. Maybe the usage of that park was a concern. City held a couple of listening sessions about this. And eventually the advocates at those listening sessions were kind of saying, hey, we know what we think about this. We'd like to hear from you. And here's city manager Greg Caton speaking to a group about the city's thinking on this issue. What else has been happening at Whitman Park? Significant violence has been occurring. And it's gotten worse over the summer period. That factored into the decision. We can't have that type of activity in that park. So then some might ask, what's the threshold? What does it trigger enough? That's a tough question. But it, it reached a point where we had to close it. And we closed it because it had been talked about for a special event place for over 10 years. We were planning an event in that park. So I would say it's not closed. It's open. It's open for special events. And I would say, quite frankly, for the broader community, it's been closed for 15 years. We're opening it to the broader community. And for those folks that use that park, let's talk about our appropriate place for them. Let's talk about services. Let's talk about housing. So you heard him kind of touch on some of those things that come came up. And a big factor of it was the city thought that this being sort of the de facto gathering place and service providing place for the homeless was shutting off the park to other use and that that needed to change if the city was going to make progress both on connecting these people as service providers and on using that park again. And they've said they're trying to work with service providers to find another location because they understand that having that spot makes it easier to find these people and easier to help these people won't tell us what those locations are yet until they got hammer it, hammer it out, but those are on the list. And he also says the city is taking concrete steps to address this issue. They're spending a lot of money and they're trying to move with greater alacrity on the problem. Can you give us an idea of what those are? Yeah, the biggest pot of money is about $10 million in COVID relief funds that the city got back when the ARPA bill passed from the federal government. And they chose to direct those towards housing, homelessness, behavioral health. And they got a lot of applause for that because everyone sees that as a need. They've taken some heat for how long it's taken, but people are genuinely excited. Groups like Catholic Outreach are getting money to build a homeless shelter actually across the street from Whitman Park. So they are taking steps in this front. But advocates for the community say these shelters aren't opening anytime soon. It's going to take time to get there. And meanwhile, the leaves are changing. Winter is coming. We're going to see snow on the ground soon. And what's going to happen in the meantime? Tom, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Chandra. Colorado Matters Western Slope producer and reporter Tom Hess talking about how the city of Grand Junction is responding to the ongoing problem of homelessness. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. If you really want to know what's going on in this country ahead of the election next year, you've got to get away from the extremes and listen to the middle. 
Hi, my name is Venkat. I'm calling you from Atlanta, Georgia. On my new live national call-in show, The Middle with Jeremy Hobson, we'll elevate the voices of Americans who need to be part of our national conversation. Hi, Jan, here in Kansas City, Missouri. Join me every week for The Middle with Jeremy Hobson. Tonight at 9 on CPR News and KRCC. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Monthly employment numbers seem like a good way to judge Colorado's economic health. But lately, those stats have been, well, wonky. CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland recently sat down with our Nathan Heffel to explain why. Hey, Sarah, thanks for coming in. Hey, Nathan. Happy to be here. So I guess to start, it's clear that the job numbers are a pretty important piece of the economic picture. How's the market looking here in Colorado? Well, the state is definitely still adding jobs, um, like the rest of the country. So that's obviously a good thing. But exactly how many jobs we're adding is actually pretty difficult to say. (laughs) What do you mean? Doesn't the state Labor Department track exactly that? Yeah, well, they do. They release the numbers every month. But lately, the estimates have been way off. Take July, for instance, and what they said was happening with the leisure and hospitality sector that month. The initial estimate was that Colorado lost 3,500 leisure and hospitality jobs in July. But once the revisions were in, it turned out it was more like a loss of 1,300 jobs. So that's kind of a big deal. And that's a big difference. Yeah. And that's been happening just about every month. The numbers are all over the place. Um, And, you know, I should say that revisions to economic data are pretty normal. A lot of this stuff isn't an exact science. And when new information comes in, the numbers change. But Colorado's jobs revisions have been unusually big. Like, even the experts are stumped. Here's Colorado State economist Ryan Gedney. Even I, who do this as a living, I'm having difficulty being like, what is actually going on? Now, I have tools at my disposal and years and years of expertise, but it's still, it's been very challenging, I'd say, for the last year, two years. For the last year or two, he said. Is there a reason it's been happening? Did something change? Well, I mean, not exactly. Part of it is probably the way the data is collected. The monthly jobs numbers are based on survey responses from businesses, and they don't all answer at the same time. And that means the numbers can change as more responses come in. So maybe companies are just being slower about getting their surveys done. And there's no deadline for the survey responses? No, not really, because the responses aren't even mandatory. Um, and it turns out that the response rate has been going down, like, by a lot. And that's likely another culprit in these big revisions. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics says that before the pandemic, about 60 percent of companies reliably responded to the monthly employment survey. And now that's down to 40 percent. And those are national numbers, but Gedney says Colorado's look the same. Now, Sarah, does anyone know why fewer companies are participating? Uh, Unfortunately, no. Nobody has a great answer. But it's definitely a problem. It goes beyond Colorado, and it just seems to be getting worse. Wow. So bottom line, is there really any way to actually know what's going on in Colorado's job market at any given time? 
Well, if you zoom out from the monthly numbers, you can get a better idea of what's happening. So let's look at the past 12 months. You can kind of smooth out some of that volatility. And when you do that, what you see is that accommodation and food services account for the most new jobs in Colorado by far. And that's followed by government jobs. And then on the other end of the spectrum, financial services has lost the most jobs, uh, which is not surprising. Interest rates have really gone up. And that sector is very sensitive to interest rates. But the problem is we're still dealing with imperfect data. I'm just trying to to get a sense of this. It's 2023. Shouldn't there be a better way to do this than just relying on voluntary surveys? Okay, so Nathan, actually, there is. I don't want to get too into the weeds here and have people's eyes start glazing over. (laughs) But there is another way to measure jobs. It's called the Quarterly Census of Employment and Wages. And that's based on information tied to unemployment insurance. Businesses are legally required to submit this information. Why not just use that then? There's a big time lag, like four to seven months. Hmm. Gedney says the state does release that information when it becomes available, but by the time it comes out, nobody is paying attention. They're too interested in the monthly numbers. We used to actually have a press call for that. That kind of stopped back in like 2019. Uh, we had maybe one one reporter call in. And then one, when we had zero, I was like, all right, we're killing it. <laughs> well, so Sarah, you have piqued my interest 1,000%. What do those numbers say? Okay, the most recent update came out in August. That covered the first quarter of this year, January, February, and March. The numbers look a lot better than the data has been showing. There were 27,000 more jobs in Colorado in March than what was reflected in survey responses. That sounds good, right? Yeah, and Colorado's job growth has been lagging the U.S. rate for the past year, which isn't typical, and clearly it's concerning. Um, And Gedney says once all the data is finalized, though, Colorado should make up some of that ground. This is really fascinating. And, and, And I have to say, everything about the economy has felt just weird for so long. You know, it's like it's bad, but the numbers say it's good. Is this wonky data gathering process kind of a part of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's mixed messages about what's happening with the economy. People are confused. We're coming out of an unprecedented economic disruption from COVID, and we still aren't sure how it's all going to shake out in a lot of ways. And bad economic data isn't helping. Well, you have cleared up some things for me, so I do appreciate it. Thanks so much for coming in. You bet. CPR business reporter Sarah Mulholland speaking with our Nathan Heffel. One in 10 people who caught COVID still suffer from symptoms like fatigue and chest pains. Now, a major research project involving Coloradans aims to learn more about long COVID. Here's CPR health reporter John Daly. Clarence Troutman from Denver caught the virus at the start of the pandemic. He was hospitalized for two months and on a ventilator. Now, more than three years later, some illness lingers. It hits home. Fatigue, dizziness, brain fog, still experiencing all of that, uh, along with some neuropathy. Nerve damage causing pain, weakness, numbness, or tingling. It kind of comes and goes, and when it does come, it's pretty darn painful. But research involving patients like him in Colorado offers new hope. 
Dr. Sarah Jolly is the medical director of the UC Health Post-COVID Clinic. It's one side of the large National Recover Study looking at recovery after COVID. There's still a lot of Coloradans with long COVID. She says perhaps 10% of people who've caught the virus develop chronic symptoms. Roughly between 250,000 to 600,000 Coloradans are living with long COVID currently. One challenge is pinpointing what exactly long COVID causes. Here's infectious disease doctor Christine Erlinson. A lot of the symptoms that people experience after COVID are common in general, like fatigue. And unfortunately, a lot of people have fatigue even before we had COVID. Researchers examined more than 30 symptoms and identified 12 which set apart those with and without long COVID, things from brain fog to a chronic cough. Clarence Troutman, who wasn't part of the study, tells me he experienced nine of those symptoms. I think if I could get my endurance back, my breathing were better, a lot of other things would fall into place for me. The study found those who were unvaccinated, got sick before the 2021 Omicron strain, or who had it more than once were more likely to develop long COVID and had more severe cases. Troutman hopes the study sheds more light on the condition. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a long road, but I do feel like it's getting better. Researchers say the ongoing study will serve as a foundation for clinical trials and hopefully treatments to come. I'm John Daly, CPR News. We'll be right back with the reason Colorado is the tornado capital of the U.S. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. You may think of Colorado as the place where the deer and the antelope play, but the American antelope is not an antelope at all. It's the pronghorn, whose closest relative is the giraffe. Pronghorn have white bands across the throat, white fur on the rump and belly, and forked horns they shed every year. You may see them in wide open spaces across Colorado, or you may not, because pronghorn are fast, sprinting at more than 50 miles an hour. The world's second fastest land animal, they're built for speed. Light bones, hollow hair, and for cardiovascular superiority, a large windpipe, heart, and lungs. They are not, however, faster than a speeding bullet. Hunters once sold them by the wagon load, and by the 1940s, they were nearly extinct. But thanks to wildlife management, today more than 70,000 pronghorn roam the American West. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Mintz Law Firm in Lakewood. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The arrival of fall isn't just the end of green leaves. It also marks the official end of tornado season in Colorado. And we'll take stock of it with a question we got through our Colorado Wonder series. Here's John Huggins of Thornton. I know that Well County, Colorado, is known for having the most tornadoes of any county within the continental U.S. And I'm trying to understand not only why that is, but why they are such a low magnitude. My co-host Ryan Warner shared John's question with Mike Nelson, chief meteorologist at Denver 7 and author of the Colorado Weather Almanac. He confirmed what John said about how prone Weld County is to tornadoes. It's a great fact, and it's a very surprising one, because you'd think it'd be somewhere down around Oklahoma City or Dallas or something like that. But because of the terrain in Colorado, where we have the Cheyenne Ridge to the north 
and the Palmer Divide to the south, there's actually, in certain wind conditions in the warm season, a convergence line where air comes together, and that goes from about Castle Rock through Aurora up toward Keensburg and Roggen, all the way up into the middle of Weld County. When the air comes together, we call it the Denver Vorticity Convergence Zone, the air can't go into the ground, it's forced to rise. And so you get these rising columns of air that form thunderstorms along this Denver Convergence Vorticity Zone. <laughs> and those thunderstorms oftentimes will spin a little bit. And for that reason, it is tornado central. We get all kinds of land spouts that occur, and occasionally bigger ones like the Windsor tornado. And therefore, Weld County, Colorado is the tornado capital of the United States. The Windsor tornado of 2008 still emblazoned in my mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that one was unusual for a number of different reasons. One, it was a killer tornado. We don't get a lot of those in Colorado. We've had very few fatalities compared to states to the east of us. Two, it started at 1130 in the morning. Most of our tornadoes are late afternoon. And three, it went from the southeast toward the northwest, kind of backwards from what you would expect. Mostly you think tornadoes are going to go from west to east. This one went back toward the mountains. And that was due to a really dynamic weather system that we had that particular day. And it was an EF3 tornado, which is unusually strong this close to the mountains because typically our air is too dry up here to get the really big thunderstorms that produce the really big tornadoes. Yeah, so we just have this very specific topography that makes us susceptible to this. And it's also the reason we get so many big hailstorms, because uh -huh. that same zone creates a lot of big, nasty thunderstorms that can drop large hail. This summer was one of the busiest in decades for tornadoes. Uh, NOAA's Storm Prediction Center tracked 76 twisters in Colorado through mid-August. And not just more of them, but stronger ones as well. What do you make of this pattern? Well, this year we had a wet summer and a, a cool summer, relatively speaking. Much of the of the planet had a very hot summer, the Northern Hemisphere, if you will. And here, because we had a fair amount of rain, it cooled the atmosphere a little bit, more clouds, more rain, more moisture in the soil to evaporate out. So we didn't have the 100 degree days. I think we had maybe four that were 99 degrees, mm -hmm. but no triple digits this summer. So this was a wet summer. The weather was wet. The world is still getting warmer with climate change. And so that comes back to weather and climate are very much related, but they're not the same thing. I understand we had two category EF3 or stronger tornadoes this year in Colorado. The first time that's happened in 30 years. And the one that yeah. I remember so distinctly was the Yuma tornado which did cause some damage and fortunately stayed just outside of the town of Yuma. But with our camera network for one of the few times in my over 45 years of being on TV, I actually was uh, in a split screen with me and a live picture of a close-up shot of a tornado. Thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome, Ryan. Denver 7 Chief Meteorologist Mike Nelson speaking with my co-host Ryan Warner. So what about Colorado do you want to understand better? Send us your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.